2: Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and Ian is fresh off the LeaderCast event. Ian spoke at LeaderCast, and it was a great success. People were raving about it there at the event. Ian had a wonderful time connecting with people one-on-one at the book table while signing his book, The Road Back to You. There's been lots of positive feedback on Twitter and Instagram, so we thank you all. Awesome. If you missed out on LeaderCast, we've got a great opportunity coming up for you right here in our own backyard in Nashville, Tennessee, May 17 and 18. We're excited to announce that we'll be hosting a two-day workshop to teach you the tools to dramatically improve the way that you work, lead, and care for those around you. So you'll want to learn more about that, and to do that, go to the ix.co. The nine.co, but it's the Roman numeral nine. T-H-E-I-X.co. T-H-E-I-X.co. Go there and you can learn all about it, but make sure you jump on it because the space is limited. Alright, today's show, part two of Ian's two-part conversation with the man we all love, David Gunger. David and his partner John Arndt make up the band called The Brilliance. Stick around to the end of the show to hear a feature song from The Brilliance. And now on with the show, let's join our host in part two of his conversation with David Gunger.
0: So we were talking this weekend with a group of eights and uh, just talking about confusing vulnerability with weakness and how eights do that uh, as a central feature of, the, of that type. And one of the questions I asked him was, when, when have you felt in your life most vulnerable and weak? And what ultimately was the effect of that experience on you? Like, yeah. So what was that for you? Oh, see, you, you just
1: know how to hit the eight pressure point. I feel like every eight... <laughs> Because we want to be strong, and because I feel like we want to be authentic, we really long for authenticity. Um, we become inauthentic because I want to say, and I know this is, sounds a little clumsy as I get there, but like, I want to th- really believe that I am being authentic with you and that I am being vulnerable with you. So I'll share a story right now that makes it seem like I'm being really vulnerable. And I want to believe that I'm being really vulnerable, but the 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 thing is, eights at the very like core of them because at some loss of innocence or some loss of trust. If you really feel like you betrayed an eight, it's hard for us to ever. Now I what's uh, well we can dive into my story later a little bit more into where this sometimes gets a little confusing for me, but I. I feel like I'm very loyal to my family, right? You don't mess with my family. And if you've ever messed with my family, I I almost feel like I go Arya on Game of Thrones, which for people who are not super nerds, (laughs) like she has a list of people, right? And I almost have the thing of like, you don't mess with my family. I have my my list. And it doesn't mean that I hope that anything terrible happens to you, but I'm kind of done with you, right? And for me... I bring that back around saying, like, dude, who am I vulnerable with? Because if I'm vulnerable with everybody, I think there's a part of me deep inside that almost doesn't trust that, you know, because Mm -hmm. at the core of me, somewhere along the line, I felt like innocence was taken away, which means I don't fully trust the world or everyone And when I lean into that, the people who I do trust, I like really, really, really trust, you know, and so Mm -hmm. to lean into the times of feeling like, when did you feel most weak or most vulnerable? I think it's the times that I hurt those who I trust. Mm. And then actually trying to deal with that. And it's still so hard to think about those those times. Um, where you feel like you totally let someone down, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I I said all of that to buy enough time to be like, do I really
0: have to think of the time I was most vulnerable? And and I'm a therapist. I can wait a
1: long time. Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) I can watch a squirm a long time. So so let's go some pressure points, and maybe I'll just do, here's my therapy session with you uh, for the world. Uh, I will... I'll just maybe say some things and and maybe I'll end up landing on it going like, that's it, right? So by saying some things, I'll say some memories that I felt like maybe I brought shame on some some level to those who I trust most or love most. And I think for me, um, without going into too much detail, especially about names and that type of thing, my dad, when I Mm -hmm. was in junior high, was um, a mega church pastor and um, he ended up having an, an affair with essentially our nanny, right, or a closest babysitter. And there were things that happened during that time where I was a kid, and whatever you want to say, this is, I think on one level, I, oh, um, well, I'll just say it. So I, I, was, I was having dreams at that age at like seventh grade, that my dad was having an affair with this person and I would have these crazy nightmares and I would tell my dad about it. And at the time he lied to me Um, and just said, Oh, I would never do that. You know, that's, that's crazy. And then I think what was weird is I was in such a hyper religious environment in Tulsa at a private Christian school that sometimes the way that people talked about dreams was hyper spiritualized, you know, that I ended up um really wrestling with when everything came out was was that God telling me this or was that and I, I blamed myself for it like mm. the affair and then ended up there was a couple of moments that were really hard. One of them was um one of them was too personal to share right now and I'm sorry that's I, I'd say that for the protection of people I love. But one of another one that I just will share was, uh, at the time we were really worried about my dad's safety. When everything had come out, he couldn't be found, and mm-hmm. we called this woman, and my mom was on the phone, and this woman who was like essentially you know a babysitter for years and years had said, uh, "We're asking where it is," and I'm just in seventh grade. And I'm just going, please, you know, I'm crying. Please, can you tell me if you know where he is? Can you please tell us? And she ends up kind of apologizing. And then she says, and I'm too young to kind of process what's going on, but she says to me, I love you. And I, in response, like really quickly just say, I love you too. But I knew my mom was on the phone. And as soon as I said that, I felt such shame because I felt like, Hmm. oh my gosh, what did I just do to my mother? What did I just make her endure? and that little moment shaped so much tied with another moment of me kind of catching feeling like something was wrong with these dreams. And a a third incident that was even more real where my dad had lied to me when I felt like there was something going on. I kind of caught something weird going on. I felt like it was all my fault. I felt like Mm there. And so I felt like I had to keep their marriage together. Now, luckily, and through the grace of, Everything that is good and holy. My parents ended up working on their marriage. They've been married. That was over 20 years ago. They've been married and totally healthy. It's a great story of redemption. Um, But in the midst of that chaos, our family got super, super tight. And there were little other little traumas that would happen along the way that I think um, somehow I internalized um, feeling like on some level I betrayed my mom and my biggest fear would ever be falling into the same type of traps that my father fell into or betrayal or those types of things. And you know that eights tend towards lust, right? And it's more mm-hmm. than just sexual lust, but just through all of those, I feel like for me, for with Kate, with Everyone, sometimes out of fear, you react certain ways and you get hostile in certain things and you get aggressive in certain ways. And when things come back up, they're like little triggers. So for instance, I've been working in churches since I was a young guy, like 18, got hired at a mega church in Michigan. They didn't know how old I was. And I started working as a worship leader for like high school and college Groups at this large mega church. They ended up making me a youth pastor, worked there for four years, went to Tulsa, worked uh, at my parents' church, and then uh, they kind of joined with another church, worked there. Then I moved to Arizona, worked at another like mega church again. And through all of these, in a matter of about, you know, 12 years, I had eight different leaders who had affairs in some way at churches. Mm. So, and each one was different and odd and i'll I'll share a few that kind of like maybe go like Ugh, get get a little ouch um because the, the obviously everything had happened with my dad one of the people that came in during that time who was a family friend was a guy named ted haggard right and for a lot of people they may remember that name oh, because yeah mm-hmm. yeah ted ted had his own demons and his own scandal in uh at that at that time he made some decisions that really kind of had hurt our family and felt like a betrayal of trust. He he ended up taking mm-hmm. that woman and she's been totally fully life healed and and it's a beautiful story of redemption all the way around. Where she has a family and she's she's doing really well, but she he had brought that woman to his church, which we had family vacationed with these people and all of a sudden to feel like someone that's kind of a spiritual leader take another woman kind of not talk at all to your mom you know to once again to this place of like who you feel like you have to protect um later when everything had happened with him the the feeling of betrayal again back to when you're like a junior hire, being like wow you were such a hypocrite then my first boss at the church i'm working at uh he had an affair then my next boss at the church i'm working at he had an affair To then he and he the second guy at this church was would always try to kind of claim himself to be uh, my mentor (laughs) even though like I would never say he was my mentor he always like he was my self proclaimed mentor and we we ended up I moved a worship leader that I was with uh, under at my parents' church I'm doing youth ministry that worship leader dies end up getting into a freak thing. He was 44, had a heart attack. I'm now doing all this extended stuff, and I moved to start a band, and I end up moving to Arizona. And while I'm in Arizona, the senior pastor ended up having, came out that he had eight affairs, and I got laid off. And so I'm like back in this place of like, what am I doing with my life? Where Do I even believe this anymore? Do I believe in like the church thing? Do I believe in the like... The system that I'm in, I'm in like essentially a big business system for church. And I just felt despondent and felt tired. And luckily, um, a pastor in Houston, a guy named Chrissy, reached out and said, man, just um, why don't you come down here and just we'll, we'll help you just have a place to just be for a while. And we didn't end up moving there. We ended up moving back to Tulsa and just kind of were with family for a bit, but I would go down there. I'm forever grateful to Chris. He's a dear friend Um, because he kind of gave me work in a time of like being like, do I really want to work in a church? And we ended Mm. up finding our way in New York with the person that I work with now. But the one thing from the very beginning was I was totally always honest about where I was at with Michael He's the other pastor that I work with in Tribeca. And I feel complete trust with him. Complete mm-hmm. trust. And I can be really vulnerable with Michael, I feel like, which was really important for me. Um, but the people that I feel like I can be vulnerable with, it's a small list, mm-hmm. very small list, like right. th- that I can actually be honest with, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um and so part of that has been dealing with those own, you know, I, I say that long story of like, why did you tell the story of the eight people having the affair and the story of your dad and the story of, I feel like those things shaped me to be like, who can you trust? Who are your friends? I have been, my friends are people that usually... Um, once you're my friend, you're a friend for a long time, but I don't have a ton of friends. I'm friendly with a ton of people, and I have a lot of casual friends, but people who are my friends are like my family. They're like my closest right. confidants. Right. And so once you're in, you know, Ian, you're in. You're you're one of my godfathers, you know? It's like that. that's a certain level of trust that I have. But I feel like, and I have to wrestle with this, of how do I guard my answer of vulnerability because I have only the people that I can trust. But how do I also be super vulnerable with the people that actually know me? Because mm-hmm. I still put up those walls. I feel like,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that's the practice that I'm in of yeah. trying to, trying to do that and trying to recognize where my ego gets in the way or my pain gets in the way.
0: Thank you for your, you're very vulnerable and, and, and considered answer. I, I, I think that's really helpful for people who are trying to you know, become healthy AIDs or love someone uh, who is an eight. Uh, you use the word innocence, <clears throat> which of course is a major theme in the life of an eight. We often talk about how um, eights lose innocence, but it's it's a very elusive term, right? Like, like what, what exactly does it mean that, that uh, uh, an eight loses innocence uh, earlier, somewhere along the way, a life's way that Therefore they feel this need to create a a hard sort of exterior shell to hide the more vulnerable tender uh weak weaker side of their in, their interior world lest they someone see it and betray them you know because they get that information Um I, what is innocence like what the I mean I have a theory about it, but what like what is it what does it mean when you say innocence like what is that loss I Well, for me,
1: my personality is built around one of the ways that I feel that I love the fiercest is by protecting. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I felt like someone didn't protect me. Mm. And because I felt like I wasn't protected, not only do I feel that loss of innocence, of feeling... Like, uh, I'm protected, but now I need to
0: protect those I love because I can't trust Mm -hmm. that they're going to be protected either. So that's fascinating. and and, So there's two things that are fascinating. One is is that you have such a tender quality and vulnerable quality in your voice, the tone of your voice. I'm not sure what to make of it. I'm just naming it. The second thing is, you know, the that, of course, eights are often called the challenger, right? But they're also called the protector. Um, and so that that quality of protection I hear uh, in your story and in your desire, uh, but oftentimes there's sort of a psychological drama going on there, and we all have our different sort of central dramas being played out, But and that is by caring for someone else who the eight sees or experiences as vulnerable and weak, the eight is actually uh, uh, caring for their their own weakness and vulnerability. It's as though, by extension, there's this experience of of caring for themselves. That to, as if to go back in time and protect themselves uh, and their own innocence. So I I heard uh, I was out at the Helen Palmer event, you know, training in California a while ago, and an eight defined innocence like this. I'd love to know what you think. He said. Uh, innocence is open heartedness without cynicism. That's funny. I, I don't know. I don't, maybe this is
1: where eights can differ on the, on the shades is for me, life is beautiful and it's a gift. And so I don't become a cynic as easily as that, um, now, I might get cynical about, you heard me get cynical about like a, a business of the church, <laughs> evangelical model of the system. But life in itself, um, I don't get as cynical. So I don't resonate with that as much as if someone can experience the beauty of life for some reason because of some type of trauma or some type of that, That's an injustice that then drives me for people to be able to experience the beauty or have healing from that. Um, if they if they can't, okay, I, I'm, this is a little clumsy, I'm sorry, but the so for instance, for me with my son, one of the things that this is an eight mantra. I'm a dad that this is probably trouble. And for whatever parenting person, I'm sorry that I do this to my son, but this is an eight parenting move. (laughs) I tell my son, I'm like, son, what are the three laws of being a man? What are the, what are the rules? And he says, love God. And I say, yeah, but what does that mean? And he says, see the dignity of everyone and respect women. And you can probably tell from my own story of um, if I can't see the dignity of everyone and there is something that actually dehumanizes people, it drives me to where like, what is loving God if it dehumanizes someone? What is that? Because my own faith is all built on the aspect of what does it mean to love God? You, You love someone, you love people. And somehow when you see people and actually see them, you see the face of God. And so for me, a driving thing for what does it mean to be human and to love is to actually see people. And it drives to like see their essence, see their goodness, see their, their beauty. And the other thing that you heard there, that respect woman is like also knowing like the reality of power dynamics. And, and for me as a man and as a all these certain things of how I have to deal with privilege, of going, okay, now, when I lean into that, and I know this, I'm trying to get back to your question of innocence and not being cynical, of going, okay, for me, do I start with how do how do I see, and this is going to sound way, I don't know, I don't want it to sound like some people might be like, oh, this is so new agey or so whatever, but you'd be like, okay, we are all made up from like, you know, stardust. We are all made up from these from this world in which we all share such common DNA. And we all are these, we're all the universe. We're made up from the universe. And from that, when I see our our likeness, our unity, our, our oneness, somehow for me, it inspires this thing of going like, oh, this, just be, be that. You don't need, you have to learn how to just be. And for me, I don't know how to always just be because I get caught up in the pain and the trauma of life and in other people's injustices that I end up in trying to fix the problem, become part of the problem. Oh, explain that. What does that mean? Well, I think sometimes that this is a problem within progressive ideologues sometimes eights can become enchampioning champ you know becoming a champion of justice or a champion of like what is right or i'm going to stand up i'm going to protest i'm going to do this uh we don't we don't see the ways in which not only are we a part of the problem but we're always uh, maybe this is the cynical side that i try to i not try not to But like no matter what, it's I'm learning to surrender, and for an eight, it's so hard to learn to surrender because we want to be, we feel like we can't trust the world, so we need to be in control. And so, for a lot of times, I feel like I don't know. For at least for ideas of what's wrong with the world and what's the we think that somehow we'll we'll make it right and in doing so we leave this our shadow side our ego our our drive to make things right we 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 end up with a path of destruction because we bully or run over people in the name of justice or in the name of doing what's right for the job we work at or the people that we love and we end up just kind of being bulldozers all in the name of justice, but we create more chaos. Mm. And I've seen that. I've seen myself do that relationally. Um, So for instance, I'll give you like a real small side of this. I remember my family is super honest with each other and we have these. uh, What's funny is my dad with all, he has three boys and one girl. And with all three boys, we can all fight with my dad real hard Mm -hmm. what's funniest is the one that gets in the biggest argument in the family usually is me but my dad and me are actually incredibly close we know how to fight pretty well um but uh, on his 60th birthday i remember he said something and it made me so mad it was something that like of course as a younger person talking to an older person about like a political thing uh it just It it drove me crazy so much to the point where we had like a four hour argument in this restaurant. We closed the place down. And, you know, now to this day, I think actually he would see, he would use language that I was using at the time. But when I look back on it, I ruined his whole 60th birthday Mm. because in the name of justice, I just wouldn't give it up. And we fought and argued, and instead of seeing the goodness and beauty of life and celebrating him, I was after some idea and essentially just argued and argued. And I've done that at Christmas. I've done that at on trips. I've done that on all types of things where in the name of whatever good I'm trying to defend, that I can run over people I love. Hmm. Um and that's what I mean by that. Now, that can, that can also be extended into other things, like work things, into you know company things, into church things. I remember looking back in the past of people that I've worked with, and I'm probably going like, you know, I felt like I was righteous in this, and I still feel like I was doing the right thing. But I was kind of a jackal because I just believed it so much that no matter what, I had to stand up for that. And in doing so, people don't always learn that way. You can just do damage. Mm-hmm. They learn through, you know, actually suffering love, like suffering love and questions and all those things. And eights aren't always good at asking good questions. We're good at telling good answers. Right. But that's kind of the truth bat that just like pummels people to death.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you're you are an odd eight. <laughs> you you are your own eight and you are proof that there are hues and shades to to every uh to every type and uh you're one of the more the more one of the more unusual that I've ever heard and I um there are so many themes and ideas that run through your story and your tone and posture that don't don't feel eight you know what I mean i'm sure you feel that ambivalence too and others have um yeah but and so many that do uh so many that do and it just is a sort of a uh, makes me more when when that happens to me rather than feeling frustrated like why can't i give this person why can't i assign this person an um a number or an enneagram type i actually just feel brought to reverence uh about the complexity of of human beings and it doesn't frustrate me so much as in a good way, kind of bring me to silence. Um, That, you know, Enneagram's good, but it ain't perfect. It doesn't account for everything. Yeah, the things that Enneagram has helped me with, because obviously even from I discuss
1: it, I feel like there are certain things in my life where it's like because I have the family that I have and because I've had the spiritual friendships that I've had and the friendships... You know, John, the person that I work with, when you talk about, like, loyalty, like, John has been my best friend since we were a little kids, you know? Yep. And he's incredibly, like, he's wounded me many times, and I him. Um, and we don't see the world all the time with, through the same language, and yet um, one of the things that the Enneagram has really taught me is, like, spiritual practices mm-hmm. that are really hard for me. And they kind of teach me awareness, um, and so for that, I'm trying to learn, and I'm not good at this. How to how to learn to actually be still, mm-hmm. because for me, I have a million things going on, and I try to do 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 do. I've got lots of projects. I've got four kids. I've got. A band. I've got multiple side project things going on. I've got a church that I work at full time, and in everything I do, I want to give it my all. And yet, learning how to be still, I feel like some of the people, and maybe this is why, you know, you as a four or different fours have drawn me in sometimes. Is um, I think that the biggest spiritual influences in my life that have helped me like wrestle with my eightness and my need for control are people like uh, Thomas Merton. And, you know, I remember being in college and just being so, something in my soul was being spoken to by Henry Nouwen and, and a lot of different um, writers who deal with how do how do we love ourselves and how do we deal with, um, not, you know, the dark side of trying to feel like we're all right and social justice and all these certain things that have really have really helped me learn mm-hmm spiritually and you were a huge influence in that the first time I ever I never even I don't think I had ever read a Thomas Merton book and you somehow kind of brought me to him (laughs) and the the book that I feel like one of the books that has just blown my world has been this uh, Birds and the Zen of Uh, Appetite Appetite of Zen you know what I'm talking about it's like this little book that just just messed up the title there but actually I've got it right here it's Zen and the appetite of birds. Yep. I'm sorry, Zen and the birds of mm-hmm. appetite. How many times could I say that? Yep. That uh, that I don't know for an eight. That kind of spoke to me like crazy. Um, and it's been it's been I feel like slowly
0: healing my eightness. <laughs> right, right. Kind of is it a sort of a feel like a process of defrosting. Oh
1: <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Uh, uh, Yes. A process. It's funny. You were talking about the eight is a challenger. And for me, I can see the good sides of challenging. But for me, it's hard not to just in an argument, see the other side and challenge and argue and not. Just it's almost like my shadow side of like oh stop it's my dark side mm-hmm. the challenger and the the light side is the protector but we get confused because in order to protect we have to challenge mm-hmm.
0: and in doing so usually we don't challenge well mm. so all right you oh god some of these run through my mind one is I I've been really wrestling with this idea that I'd love to actually come up with three names for each type because we're always going from. Oh, there's health, there's average, there's unhealth, you know, whatever, in personality, the fluidity of personality. And so taking eights, I've been beginning to map this a little bit, right? So eights in their healthy space, like you just said, I would call the protector. And in the average space, I would call them the challenger. And one word I've sort of played with for the in the space of unhealth is the enforcer. Um, mm. So that I'm just trying to find, I'm not trying to confuse the waters here. First, but I do think, I mean, I know some enneagram teachers out there that would say, "Oh, don't name them anything." But I think there's power when you name something, particularly in the beginning part of a journey, because when the moment you name something, it becomes real. Uh, it's no longer an abstraction. Uh, so, and I think for some people that's helpful. You know, to say, "Okay, so here's some characteristics that, or a, a word that may summarize characteristics within a different space." So I was I was happy to hear you say, you know, when I'm healthy, I'm a protector, and when I'm not, I'm a challenger. You know. Because I do think there are some, maybe mm-hmm. some, some more interesting nomenclature there for each type, um, and I think, um, by the way, that you know, Merton was a four <laughs> with a five wing, and uh, which meant that, and and when you read his his work around social justice, like in uh, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, uh, among others, of uh, these incredible books on justice that he wrote. He was also incredibly bold uh, in the things that he said. I think, I think sometimes people think that, eight, that fours are kind of, we are in a withdrawing stance, we are, all those things, but we can be pretty aggressive. There's an aggressive side to, in fact, arguably, sexual eights, bonding eights and their subtype can be the most mean number on the Enneagram, and that's just a fact <laughs> Sexual force are really... And they're un, if they are unhealthy, it's really not good. It's actually... They're very aggressive and unkind. Um, cruel, actually, and vengeful. Uh, and feel utterly free to treat others uh, in with complete and utter disregard for their feelings. Um, so, all to say... Uh, I... I don't know David i eight wow, eight, you're such an odd eight uh, um so uh, and i I l- can you just say one other ahead. thing, like your music, dude, your music is like loaded up with um so much tenderness at times. Uh, you're so self-reflective. I don't know very many self-reflective eights who are naturally self-reflective. They're so externally focused, um, and they actually—it's hard for them to do interior, you know, in, to do a lot of internal work. And you are exquisitely attuned to that space. So anyway, I—you're you're teaching me. You're teaching me things about eights I uh, perhaps that I, I hadn't I hadn't seen or experienced before. So let me, I,
1: I'm going to, I'm going to share something that taught me a lot about my own eight of trying to let go. So I, without giving too much detail, I got invited into a study through NYU and uh, it was a medical study for religious leaders and um, it, it involved um, something where I had to meditate for a, a very long time and be mm-hmm. very reflective on my story. And the practice of meditation really, at least for an eight for me, it was so hard to break through. But when I finally was learning certain, things about just learning how to be still had incredibly like huge breakthroughs for me. And one of the things while in this study, um, I had to take a dosing of something and while I'm on this dosing, I'm on this couch and you're just laying there for about nine hours, blindfolded, listening to music. And I had this experience where um, I had a sort of dream or vision of all the women in my life waiting on me and my father, they were having a meal and uh, it was a beautiful feast. And yet while they were waiting on us, we kept on feeling like we had to make meaning out of whatever we were doing. And I called this, what's funny is every time I tried to make meaning out of something, uh, I called it falling back into the loop. Because life is meaninglessness, like it's like it doesn't have any meaning, and yet there's something that transcends. And at the time, I'm reading a lot of like funny, like pretty postmodern theology, where you start talking about you know, like Tillich of the of you know the the creation story or the fall of man is one of falling from essence into existence on right. trying to make meaning, but essentially in this in my own mind of dealing with this. I kept on going back to this thing of the sacred feminine heart, my job. I kept on saying my job talking to my sons is to protect the sacred feminine heart, which was everything that is beautiful and good. And I kept on saying this and our job is to protect it. And yet throughout this kind of trip, I get to this place of going, Oh wow. Every time I try to protect it, I, I actually fall into the loop. Because I can't protect it. It's so fierce. It doesn't need protecting. It needs to protect means to protect it from yourself. Mm. And so for me, I had to deal with, I had to die to my own ego and go, I have to deal with the fact that when I say I'm the protector, who am I protecting it from? Myself, not others. It will be okay. The sacred feminine heart. This thing that I equate to goodness, God, beauty, it itself is fierce. It itself is a love that doesn't need protecting except for myself. Mm. And so when I did that and I let go of trying to just make meaning out of certain things of like, you take that into, well, my own life and going, well... I've had to embrace and read a lot of Ecclesiastes and read a lot of these things where I go, okay, and a lot of mystics that kind of embrace the meaninglessness, the, the where are you, the wrestling through the Psalms. The Psalms to me are the most sacred of scriptures. Dealing with that and wrestling with that and then surrendering to it and go, you know what? For me, beauty is the thing that transcends meaning. It transcends the loop of life. Right. And when I lean into that beauty, I go, oh, this is for me as an eight where I can like lean into the thing that I feel like I'm protecting or I feel like I'm challenging, but I'm challenging the status quo loop. And yet to challenge it, I have to challenge it within myself and go, don't buy into the lie that somehow you are the righteous, you are the protector, you are the challenger, You need to just let go and just be, just surrender, just be, and learn to just be. And for me as an eight, that's been huge because on one end, I feel like um, in every eight, one of the things that we wrestle with, with the idea of God, is the, the idea of how could God let this happen, right? How could God... So like the idea of wrestling with evil for an eight now maybe this is but the way that we wrestle with it is like we're like all right we are we have to fight the evil we have to fight this and we we really in our quietest you know in our most secret place where we wrestle with god is how could you have let this happen? and for me i had to come to a place of the universe feels the universe feels everything because we are the universe every time the smallest thing happens every time the the most evil thing happens the universe actually feels it so to get to this place of going where were you you get to this response of i was i am every time there is pain the universe feels it. And instead of then me going, how could you universe when I feel my own loss, my own loss of innocence, my own pain, I go, oh, the universe felt that. Mm. And for me that I I I didn't have to be the accuser anymore. Because I feel like on one level the eight is the ultimate accuser. And we become the accuser of the idea of God or the idea of why this is happening and in our own accusations we know it's always going to lead back to us so we cannot be vulnerable because if we keep on accusing other people we know that it won't come back to us but we have to let it come back to us mm.
0: well Dave we got a scoot man I could I could just do this forever with you and uh it you're so your heart and your just your ability to articulate these truths, I think is going to give people a really eye opening experience to a dimension of eight that they they just had no idea existed out there in the universe so i I love you I man how can just uh, down to the now to the mundane uh, what i mean you 've got so much going on as you said multiple projects how do people find out about all that stuff i 'm not really good at telling people
1: those things, so thanks for asking you know usually um, our band i say our um, John Art and myself have a band together. We're working on a project this year that's five suites. Mm-hmm. Be lots of music. One of those suites is around DACA um, and the idea of Dreamers. Uh, we also have, uh, it goes through themes. One of them is, is this the end of the world? The next one is uh, dealing with grief. Mm. Um, and so it deals with these themes. We're going to be releasing that throughout the year. You can follow us on Twitter. It's The Brilliance Music. You can follow us on Instagram or on Facebook. I hate Facebook. So please try to follow us on Twitter you know instagram or twitter usually will say what's going on um myself i I work at a church called trinity grace church tribeca in new york city so if you are a person of faith or curiosity or you know interested at all in those themes of spirituality our, our church is a lovely community that meets uh in Tribeca every Sunday morning at 10:30 so you can you know I'd love to meet you at church or else uh you can you know follow us on Twitter we, there's actually a way that you can sign up for our newsletter from our website thebrilliancemusic.com so thank you for having us our uh, you know I said us it's me but I feel like you're having my family yeah. and you're having my you're having my band and I I thank you for that
0: well Thank you. And I will say about Trinity Grace in, in Tribeca that when Annie and I lived in Connecticut, which was a solid 30 minutes to an hour away, we we drove all the way to Manhattan to be part of, of that community when we were there. Uh, we just have such a, an affection for for Michael and for you and for, for that community and, and, of course, for your music, which is extraordinary and uh, deep and... Uh, Distressing and consoling all, all at once, which is uh, a great gift. My love to you, love to Kate, love to the kids, love to everybody in New York City. And um, next time you're in Nashville, you you better come stay with us.
2: I will come stay with you. All right,
0: Much love to you. Love you. Okay, man. Thanks. Bye bye.
2: And thank you all for joining us on Typology Podcast. We're going to leave you with a song from David's band The Brilliance and the song is titled See the Love
3: Every day We go to war again We assume We know so much more than them Before we hear what they have to say headline breaks and we start to hate again, calling them names again. We give our peace away. I hope they see it because I want to see it. I hope we. I want to see, I want to see the love, oh.